0: yes we should fix climate change but with energy abundance like we're not just fixing problems we're launching humanity into a world of unlimited potential that's what we should be thinking about uh, if we get too obsessed with the problem yes like when coming up with like specific technical solutions be obsessed with the problem but when thinking about like where do we want to take society let's use our imagination because
1: the, the future is vast welcome to the Strand the technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Niklas Ansinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars. Visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. All right, today is January the 31st in 2023. And my guest is Brett Kugelmas. Brett is one of the world's top experts in nuclear power and an entrepreneur on the big mission as the CEO of LAS Energy. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Brad, I'm from Germany and sort of the anti-nuclear sentiment is almost like built into my my software, right? Uh, what about, what were your views about nuclear power growing up and how did your views evolve?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't have any views. And maybe that's, that's what my superpower was, is that I wasn't biased in one direction or another. I mean, historically looking back, you know, I grew up on Long Island and there was a a big issue there, not a technical issue, but a business issue with a plant that they built over at Shoreham. Uh, They built the whole thing. They even loaded fuel into it, ready to go. And then a bunch of environmentalists sued them and took what was under a billion dollar project, made it $5 billion in lawsuits. Can you imagine that, that you can add $5 billion? And then I think LIPA, the, the power utility there just decided it wasn't worth going on anymore. And so now there's I was like okay so that's the story of Long Island where I grew up but I don't even remember hearing about that. And then like you know I've read the you know the Isaac Asimov books the Foundation series. I Actually reread them recently and they're quite positive on nuclear but I don't remember that either. It's only it's only these things that are like coming back up now later in life I'm trying to piece together if I had any connection with nuclear but I don't think I did. I think the first time that I really understood anything about it was 6 years ago when I started the research center focused on energy and climate challenges and just took a first principles look at energy systems across the board and saw nuclear stood out just so drastically from every other clean energy source in terms of its potential and capabilities. And then that's when we decided to focus our studies almost solely on the nuclear sector.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So why did you start the Energy Center? Was that to solve or to find ways to combat climate change?
0: Yeah, climate was the big issue initially. I mean, now I've got a much more nuanced perspective where I think energy abundance is even more important, not just because of the way that it can help climate, uh, but also, you know, it's like with energy abundance, you can both... Do things that will help us from a like atmospheric climate perspective, but you can also do things that helps us from a people perspective in terms of bringing people out of poverty, in terms of better preparing them, in terms of making them more resistant to increased natural disasters. And the evidence for this is just so overwhelming. Bjorn Lomberg does a really good job uh, walking through all of this, but there, there are others as well. So my calculus on uh, energy's impact has actually changed so from just pure climate to Human flourishing and human prosperity, but the name Energy Impact
1: Center still works for both, I guess. that's great. And how did you transition from doing research with the Energy Impact Center to becoming an entrepreneur?
0: Well, I was previously an entrepreneur uh, in my in my former startup it was based on drone technology, and you know, I did my master's at Stanford, and that just like in Germany, maybe you, you get soaked in a bath of, of anti-nuclearism, and at Stanford you get soaked in a bath of entrepreneurship. Uh, so I already better had, yeah, exactly. So I already had the entrepreneurial. Uh, though Potsdam um, has a little bit of a connection to I don't know if you know this because uh, of Hussle Plotner and Sab. Yeah. It's a little bit connected to university. And during my studies, I actually came out. Um, spend time, uh, working with a team out there as well, just because of the connection between the two universities, the Hasselbladner Institute, a great, great institution. But yeah. You were asking about entrepreneurship. How did it evolve? Well, I guess I always was an entrepreneur, but I, when I first started with nuclear, I, I wasn't even sure a startup or a commercial entity was the right path. And I wanted to leave myself very open to anywhere that it took me, but in reality, after spending you know, a year really studying the space and another year studying, but also making my learnings more public and pressure testing them against the industry, I realized everyone was heading in the wrong direction. Uh, even the new nuclear startups, as great as they are, and by the way, I'm like incredibly supportive of their work. It's just the approach and the strategy I think needs a little bit of tweaking. But I realized no matter how much I asked people to follow the path that I was eventually going to go on myself, you know, based on all of these learnings and, and not seeing any movement in that direction, I just became more and more clear. I had to do it myself and I was well-positioned to just from an experience perspective and a resourcing perspective. And I guess part of me is a, a glutton for punishment. So yeah,
1: so we launched another startup. Great. I'd like to on the first half of the podcast talk a bit more about what is nuclear energy, what are the arguments for it, what went wrong. In the second half, I'd love to talk a bit more about the solution you're building with last time. Yeah. So uh, what went wrong? And what what role did Germany play?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I don't think Germany is the... Is the... <laughs> and, and, and I'm saying what went wrong because nuclear energy has a bad reputation. At least where I'm from, I realize that's different in other places.
0: I'll say right now it's, there's like a, there's like a perception problem about the perception also. I think most people think that most people don't like it and that's just not true. Uh, Most people either, I mean, listen, I'm sure 80% of people on the planet just don't know what nuclear is. They don't know what any energy system is. So those are all fresh minds. And then out of that remaining 20% of people, let's say the, you know, highly educated and, you know, the most, you know, first world countries you know, and even at the top of that spectrum, I'd say even half of those probably do like it. And then, yeah, so that leaves maybe like 10% of the planet or less that has some negative feelings towards it, but those that can be overcome.
1: Yeah. But so, what is true is that the development of nuclear power has stalled very heavily since the 1970s, right? Oh, okay. so, yes. Uh, thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank, mm-hmm. You're keeping us
1: focused.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So no, something did go terribly wrong with the industry. It totally stagnated. Um, and I can walk you through the history of, of why. that's yeah. So coming out of you know World War II and the Manhattan Project, we dropped the bomb, and people realized the power of of, of, of splitting the atom, just how much energy is contained in so little mass. And then Eisenhower, in his brilliance, said, "Hey, instead of just branding this as a weapons technology, why don't we show the the real potential of this in terms of you know transforming uh, society in a very positive way." And so not only did the U.S. start very aggressively pursuing the commercial development of nuclear power, but we also gave away the technology like across the world. I mean, there are research reactors from the 1950s that we helped set up program. We invited the best and brightest students from around the world, from our allies, but even like not so allies, we invited um, and, and really tried to disseminate uh, nuclear knowledge just because of you know, the known positive impact that it could have. And so things were booming in the, you know, the first, the fifties was all R and D and we had all our national labs building dozens of different types of reactors, every different, you know, because nuclear can be done a lot of ways. You essentially have a coolant, you have a moderator, you have a fuel, you mix them together in different combinations, but you still get heat out of it. And so we tried all these different combinations. And then started commercializing primarily the light water reactor technology. Um, And now boy, did things started booming. Yeah, there was like 18 different companies that uh, like private, private companies. And this was like a, it was like a real market, like a real, this was like the first and last time it was a nuclear was a real commercial market in the 1960s US. There were 18 private companies, like American locomotive company, a company that built trains, started building nuclear reactors, rocket ship companies built nuclear reactors. They were like 12 sitting in the hills of LA that were just like experimental reactors, just sitting there private companies could just build them. No it was problem.
1: Like a meme. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um,
0: and, uh, and the utilities were buying them like hotcakes and I mean, even Nixon and JFK as part of their, as part of their campaigns to run. They were talking about like a thousand nuclear reactors going 100% nuclear. Like those were the visions. Those were the campaigns they run on and, and they won on that campaign. So that just shows you what the sentiment was like in the 60s. And then, uh, and then things started going wrong. And I attribute this mostly to market forces, market incentives. So what happened at the time was because utilities, electric utilities were a monopoly. The, uh, they're like heavy rules on how much money they can make and how they can make money. And so the way that this market was regulated was this cost-plus model. And this is why back in the day, people would have these telephones that they wouldn't own and were like these giant metal blocks of telephones because the telecom companies only made money based on how big things were and how much they could you know, charge back you know, based on the use. So there's like no efficiency whatsoever. It's just built bigger and bigger and bigger. And the same applied to the power generation industry. And so you had these extremely cost-effective 500 megawatt reactors being built in 1968. And this is the cheapest, most cost-effective power mankind has ever seen to this day. Not to mention clean, energy security, grid benefits, all that stuff. 1968 was the heyday. And then they just kept building them bigger and bigger all the way up to 1978, where by that point, the costs had run so out of control by design, right? Because that's how the utilities made money by charging more and more, not keeping costs under control by building bigger and bigger that the, uh, finally the pushback in the system, the public utility commission started saying, this has gotten out of control. That's it. We're canceling all of our contracts. And so 200 contracts were canceled. And this was, even, this was before Three Mile Island. Whenever anyone tells you Three Mile Island kicked off, Uh, kicked off a a period of bad public sentiment towards nuclear. And that's what stagnated the industry. They just don't have their timeline, right? Like they literally just didn't read when the contracts were canceled. They were canceled before Three Mile Island, not after it. So obviously cause and effect, it could have had nothing to do with it. What? Yeah. So just costs ran out of control. Time of construction ran out of control. And then the companies just whittled down. I mean, they're already whittled down to four at this point, GE, Babcock and Wilcox, Combustion Engineering and Westinghouse. And now they'd whittle down to just two, um,
1: uh, GE and Westinghouse. Just to understand that point. So you're saying the utilities mm, were monopoly, right? So are the, they're kind of local monopolies, right? So you have a utility that's like in a certain state or county or how does that look like?
0: Well, oh my God, like in the U S it's crazy. Like, I think there's like a thousand utilities and it could be everything from like a little co-op with like a tiny little power plant somewhere, all the way to things that span multiple States. But either way they were, because you don't want to hang too many power lines, they essentially have monopoly status. And so the mechanism to govern them was just different than other private commercial industries.
1: And And they could basically because um, they were, they wanted to, so how did that increase the cost for nuclear?
0: They are only allowed to make, let's say like a 5% profit margin on whatever they physically built. So if you're capped at 5%, in order to increase the total amount of money you make, you have to increase the total price tag. So instead of these things costing in today's dollars, $1 billion, it was much more profitable for them to drive the cost all the way up to $10 billion, so long as they could get away with it. And they got away with it all the way up to $10 billion. And then the government, the local governments, the public utility commissions said, this is out of control. We're shutting this down. And that's what killed the nuclear industry. But then that's just, that's just chapter one. <laughs> so then what happened is these companies, what was left, the shell of them, of what was left, GE and Westinghouse, needed a new business model. And so instead of selling, you know, what were the, um, the nuclear widget, you know, they were the OEMs for the nuclear systems, instead of selling that for, you know, $50 million or a hundred million dollars, they went back to all of their previous customers, the hundred plus power plants that had been built in the country. And they said, what else can we sell you? And because three mile Island had just happened and fear was already on people's minds, what they could sell them were quote unquote safety systems. Can you um,
1: say what was Three Mile Island? Because I'm not sure I've heard of it or you are that was, familiar. Yeah, Three Mile Island was a meltdown of a nuclear power
0: plant in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, that hurt absolutely no one, as all meltdowns have, by the way. There's not been a single meltdown that has caused a single injury. <laughs> Chernobyl blew up. That wasn't a meltdown. And, and every other meltdown is like a non-hazardous event. And that's a point I'll keep coming back to. Like what happens? Yeah, a bunch of radioactive material melts what happens to the thing it melts, they sit in a puddle, like it's like, it's not a very high energy event. There's not a lot of dispersion of radioactive material. Got it. So, so like meltdowns aren't something people should be afraid of. It just literally characterizes the melting of a core. Um, the movement of radioactive material is something we should regulate and be concerned about, but that's not a meltdown. That's a combination of physical circumstances that surrounds a uh, release of radionucleides. Anyway. Three miles. Yeah. That was a meltdown. Um, Now you have people up in arms, the press is all, you know, afraid of it. You had a newly formed nuclear regulator that now had these like unlimited powers. it's crazy how much powers they were granted by Congress. They're created as an independent agency. So that means even the presidents couldn't tell them what to do. Like literally like they're on their own, they can do whatever they want. And they were like created with a a single mandate, not a mandate of, you know, they're not allowed to consider a cost benefit analysis. Okay so even if nuclear saved a billion lives you know but hurt one in the process they can't even consider that they can only consider the fact that maybe it hurt one Who and, and came uh, up with that idea oh. yeah that congress that's just the mandate that they were given by congress I'm, psh, like i'm I, I, yeah I, I don't know everything that was happening politically at the time that this set up that way but like the food and drug administration has a dual mandate it's like yes we know that penicillin might have give some people an allergic reaction. And every year, some people die from it, but it saves like, I mean, antibiotics save like hundreds of millions of lives. So we allow them, but you're not allowed to consider that when regulating nuclear in the United States of America. So,
1: yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy.
0: And, and there's so many worse things too that are like later on top of that. But just to continue with the story. Also, just
1: the sheer idea of, you know, giving an institution this mandate and afterwards having no like recourse or mechanism to correct it. It's like you have, you're deploying a software to hundreds of millions of people without accounting for like fixing bugs afterward in the processes. Oh my God. That's <laughs> such a good analogy. <laughs> That is such
0: a good analogy. Yeah, Yeah. think you have
1: like several thousand decision makers on the software that have to appeal to millions of people, right? It's let the engineers do it. (laughs) That is so good. That is so good. (laughs) Um,
0: okay, yeah, so, so yeah, so here we have, now we're entering into the eighties. Um, their, their original business of selling power plants was totally trashed. Like all the contracts were canceled. They're scrambling for a new business model. People are afraid of nuclear. And so instead of doing what an industry normally does when people are afraid of it, they like push back. Instead, they leaned into the fear. They said, you're right. Nuclear is so dangerous. It's catastrophic. It's the worst possible accident. This is the nuclear industry saying that, even though it's totally not true. And they use that to now um, what the economists call like a rent-seeking behavior, extract as much money as they could out of the existing utilities. It's because remember these had already been built, and like you know, you have to pay for the energy um, no matter how much it costs at this point. Even though they are only selling their reactors for like fifty million or hundred million per power plant, they went back to all of those power plants, and now we're able to get three hundred million dollars for upgrades. And they ran that playbook after Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, after September Eleventh, after Fukushima, and increased the size of their industry going from selling nuclear power to selling fear of radiation they increased the size of the industry like over tenfold if not a hundredfold so it just became like so profitable for them and then who's going to push back on that if all of the nuclear experts are saying nuclear is the most dangerous thing imaginable like this is good for the other industries so like the you know environmentalists or oil and gas like no there's just zero people to push back and that's how it's been for 50 years or for yeah, 40 years
1: yeah, uh, that's kind of fascinating so how that decision was made on behalf of the executives, right? I'm wondering what the dynamic is, right? Because the choice is, okay, I become this kind of regulated entity, right? So I basically have a ticket to survive, right? I'm the one who knows all the regulators, who has all the compliance officers um, to you know, make it extremely hard for any new startup to enter the market. So I got that versus... Well, expanding even more, right? You could also, as an entrepreneur, say, hey, I want to grow bigger. I really have a big mission to fulfill. I want to create abundant energy. So what was the decision-making space or situation?
0: Yeah, but the, you have to remember, these these like aren't startups. They're not entrepreneur-led or founder-led. These are some of the oldest companies in the country, like Westinghouse, General Electric. These are storied. These are like legends of companies. And... The founders are long gone at that point. So, you know, just the way that the, and by the way, I'm not even saying this was like a deliberate decision by the executives. I don't think there was any conspiracy. I don't think there was any like people sitting down in a room saying like, let's brainstorm ways to like reform our industry. I just think they just responded to the market. They saw an opportunity. They were already selling safety systems and analysis and services and upgrades. And it's just like that business had an opportunity to grow. And so just naturally it started growing and that's how it's been forever.
1: Mm -hmm. So managerial capitalism versus entrepreneurial, right? Yeah. 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 The founders weren't in charge anymore. At the same time, I'm wondering um, if that was really, because right now we're seeing a very new and emergent industry, cryptocurrencies, for example. And what I feel is often the situation is, they're sort of under this pressure, you know, there's FTX and there is politicians in Washington who see an opportunity to, well, oh, now we're the ones that save the day and, and, and regulate this. Uh, so they are kind of thinking, well, regulations are going to come anyway at some point And we know sort of no regulations or the existing regulations are better right? So this is kind of the second best. So let's kind of make sure and lobby so we can get at least the regulations that are somewhat better for us, right? But it's not for the lack of sort of the will to really make this the best possible technology possibly can. It's really out of the fear uh, or the threats of the government and the regulators, right?
0: And I think that's fine. I mean, listen, I lean libertarian, but I think everything should have regulations also. And those two things don't stand in contrast to each other. It's just like, it should be reasonable regulations that help enable like what we want out of an industry. And if like what we want out of an industry is it's like benefit to humanity. Let's like look at every single industry and let's design rules and regulations that like enable that benefit to emerge. Uh, that's yeah, for banking, and that's for banking and for energy and for a- li- autonomous cars and literally everything.
1: Yeah, I agree. I just think that the way we're doing it right now, like what I said before, we're deploying like software to hundreds of millions without any sort of editing or recourse. I think the intent is just much, much higher that we get bad regulations instead of good regulation.
0: I, I could, I couldn't agree more. Like, oh, man, I, I want to keep pulling on that analogy with you at some point. Like, what if we could reform our lawmaking system, like? And I know you're in a different lawmaking system than I am, um, but to like incorporate that engineer's perspective, like revisions to code and, you know, sandboxing as we, uh, as we test certain things out, like why not? Like why can't the legal framework work exactly like a programming environment? Like we could, we could do, like that is within our, like I know it seems like a little ridiculous, but that is totally within our power. Like to make that happen within a few years, to have a political revolution along those lines, if we wanted to.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, not ridiculous at all, right? I mean, we're doing it right now. I don't want to dwell about it too much. I want to hear about more, talk more about nuclear. But here in Prospera, the system is called regulatory election, right? So you have different options to adopt the regulations that you think is right for your business. You have to sell the insurance company. You need to get liability insurance and an arbitrator that that set of regulations you choose is good for you, right? So you can either do it very simply. You choose an existing regulation. So if the South Korean nuclear power regulation is best for you, you can do it. And you're likely to get very low insurance premiums because that's very well known. Or you have the option to propose your own regulation because you think you have very good expert advice that's sub- going to be subject to approval, probably higher um, insurance premiums because it's not known or tested. But, you know, that opens up the space for regulatory innovation, right? You can basically, that's cool. yeah, that's kind of the intention.
0: No, it's so cool what you're doing. And um, yeah, I think that's why we clicked when we first met. Uh, I th- Because I think like just the way you're thinking about solving this problem is a tr- incredibly innovative. And yeah, and it can have like, I mean, it could solve like, like, I always like to think about solving root problems instead of like proximate problems. And you're definitely going after like a root problem issue, which I just think is awesome.
1: Yeah. But to go back to to nuclear, right? So the industry was had made the choice, okay, we're going to be regulated. We're going to be stagnant. We're not going to adopt the technology. We're going to tell the whole world this is a super dangerous technology. and would be the only ones who can keep it safe. And that's basically how it's been for the last couple of decades, which is why you haven't seen a lot of innovation, right? Yep,
0: That's Mm -hmm. right. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. The the priesthood. They
1: Mm -hmm. created a priesthood. Yeah. Great. So before we talk about how to fix that and how you're improving on it with less energy, I would like to just go through some of the, um, you know, the German in me that's steeped in these kinds of arguments. So I'd like to have the answer from you to some of these um, arguments against nuclear. Uh, There's essentially three that I see. One you already touched on. One is nuclear power is dangerous. Right? The perception is
0: is that one. Exactly.
1: So what I typically hear is meltdown. You already said that's not dangerous, but um, can you distinguish a meltdown from Chernobyl.
0: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, big difference. So Chernobyl was not actually a real power plant. I mean, it produced power, but it was really meant to produce plutonium uh, for to make a bunch of nuclear weapons as like part of the Soviet uh, war effort. That's why they chose the RBMK style reactor, which is this like giant graphite block. Um, So uh, I'm going to contrast that with like a normal power plant. You know. 400 out of the 450 are what I call like normal power plants, which are water-based. So it's basically just a giant boiler you know, with a hot rock in the, in the center and, and you run water past it. And water is just as good as graphite or not just as good, but close enough in terms of acting as that critical role of moderator. So you need um, three things for a nuclear power plant to work, a coolant, a moderator, and your fuel. And water happens to actually serve double duty as both the coolant and the moderator, which makes it even like more like simple and easy and practical. It's just like so awesome. And so normally, you know, when anything goes wrong in a water-based reactor, uh, if things get too hot, you boil off more water, and then there goes your moderator. Also, you lost your coolant; you boiled it off, and then you lose your moderator. And so the reaction automatically dies, and it can't keep building upon itself. And so the worst thing that can happen is you've got this decay energy left over. And that decay energy is enough to melt stuff, but not enough to create like an explosion, let's say. Okay. Now let's look at Chernobyl. What happened? Chernobyl, you have a different coolant and a moderator. So, you're, so your graphite is your moderator, and that doesn't boil off. As a matter of fact, like as things get worse, it like holds on to energy and then eventually exploded. Okay. So now you've got like an explosion around radioactive material. And graphite, you know, there's like a debate on whether it catches on fire or not, but let's just, you know, for argument's sake, for visualization purpose, let's say it catches on fire and then it aerosolizes everything into like this little fine radioactive dust and spreads that out. And that's, you know, why we saw um, injuries as a result of injuries and death as a result of Chernobyl. Whereas in a water-based reactor, we've got four great examples of a meltdown happening and it causing zero harm whatsoever. So Three Mile Island, and then three cores melted at Fukushima. And what happens? Yeah, like, yeah, it melts down. And then the radioactive stuff sits in a giant you know, puddle on the ground. And sure, some of it gets out. And yes, you can always detect it with a Geiger counter because you can detect any amount of radiation, like even in our own bodies, like our natural like, carbon radiation, carbon-14. That's how we do radiocarbon dating. Like We're all radioactive for millions of years, too. We should remember that. So yeah, you can detect the spread of radiation from a light water reactor meltdown, but it doesn't mean that it created a hazard, right? Like I wouldn't drink a bottle of chlorine, right? But I do feel comfortable being in a pool with some chlorine in it, right? And I certainly feel comfortable if a bunch of chlorine, you know, evaporated into the air, you know, somewhere, you know, in, uh, you know, a hundred million acres around me. Like, yes, I could even probably, if I could detect it, I could find a chlorine molecule, chlorine, you know. Get in, have gotten into my mouth. Even if someone just let it evaporate from their backyard, that doesn't mean that it's hazardous to me. But that's that is the confusion around meltdowns and hazards associated
1: with them. Mm -hmm. And current reactor technology is always using light water. So the
0: yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there are new next generation quote unquote next generation nuclear technologies that are trying to move away from light water. But I I just think water's the best.
1: Mm-hmm. Water's the
0: best, like water's used in almost every in- industry as a medium for heat transfer. So it's amazing just from like a power plant perspective. And then it serves as double duty as the coolant and your moderator. So it has this like natural physics based mechanism to kill the reaction. Yeah. Like water is just so cool. And usually when people say that water is bad, it's because they're trying to sell you something else.
1: What about, I'm sure you can't hear it anymore, but what about the terrorist attacks? Oh my God. Yeah. That's so crazy.
0: Yeah. And then they had money that the nuclear industry depends. Like they do what's called force on force drills where they'll hire, like, I mean, listen, I like paintball as much as the next guy. And this is, it's just like adult paintball practice. They hire, you know, you know, ex-military defense contractor types to come in and pretend to invade the nuclear facility under these totally unrealistic assumptions. And then you have to hire a hundred security guards at all times for every facility to protect against these like crazy scenarios that by the way not only will never happen even if they did happen there wouldn't once again like terrorists couldn't create any damage and i can get into that later but yeah that's your tax dollars that's your, your electricity dollars that's you know but it's, hey listen it's creating great business for these ex-military contractors
1: yeah yeah what if like in ukraine right now you could uh, well shoot rockets at a nuclear power plant
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm not saying that you can't trigger a meltdown. I'm just saying that a meltdown wouldn't cause a hazard to human health. And so I don't know what will happen in Ukraine. There might be a meltdown. Um, But, uh, you know, it's like, what damage is that actually Mm going to do? I mean, our reaction to it will definitely create more damage. I mean, there's a real problem in terms of damage from nuclear meltdowns that has nothing to do with the nuclear part. It has to do with our response to it. Like when you evacuate people, you kill people. So that's a decision you're making and every government and every regulator should know that if you issue an evacuation order, like you became a murderer, you better be damn sure that you saved more lives than you killed because that's what happened in Fukushima too. A thousand people died being yanked off their ventilators at the local hospital
1: and it was totally unnecessary. So like, yeah, big mistake. Big mistake. It's so interesting, right there. I mean, most people don't know that that I'm telling this fact. They're like, Oh, how many people died in Fukushima from radiation or the meltdowns? Like zero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and yeah, but our
0: response to it. Yeah. And then like even with like the Chernobyl stuff, like, yeah, people died, but you know, we hyped the fear. And I think part of this was just because like we were still, you know, in a cold war with them. So we definitely made it worse and leaned into it. Um, like us as like a country and the whole world even. But um a lot more people have died due to alcoholism as a response to the fear of Chernobyl than died from the radiation.
1: The, the second argument is that nuclear is unsustainable. And the, t- the two key points that I hear, one is that uranium is scarce and the second is nuclear waste.
0: Yes, yeah, so uranium is scarce. That's just total bullshit. I, like, I don't know what, how any other ways to spin this. It's as, as abundant as tin, the element of tin. You know, a fistful of it would be all of the energy you'd ever need in your life. And if we were to go to 100% nuclear power and only use the uranium that's like accessible at a reasonable cost from the crust of the earth, we would have 1 billion years worth of energy production. And like our planet won't survive for another 500 million years due to the expansion of the sun. So it's like there's just zero argument in any universe that we'll run out of uranium. And people can manipulate data all they want about like mining costs and this. And they draw arbitrary thresholds. They say, oh, well, it's not cost effective if it's over this amount. And it's just like an arbitrary number and also not true. So that's how like people can distort the facts if they want to claim that we only have a couple hundred years, but like it, literally nothing could be further from the truth. And what was your other one?
1: Nuclear waste. And Nuclear many waste. we have this perception that you have this waste products that um, are sort of never going to ever evaporate naturally. And they're like super dangerous and like go into the soil and they're like almost like the alien acid, like melt down and destroy the whole ground. And they have to be stored like underneath very deep. And even then, if there's like an earthquake, that's kind of the perception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) nuclear waste has never
0: hurt a single person, place or thing in all of human history. Not even sure how it could, unless you like clawed through a foot thick of concrete and then start gobbling it up and eating it. And you could say that (laughs) of anything like, I mean, there's more toxicity in the furniture in my office than there is in nuclear waste. And so, you know what? I just don't eat it. Okay. And I'm fine. Like, that's how you handle it. Like, and and then for things that are hazardous, like we have ways of dealing with these things and like society deals with things that are hazardous for infinity long, like arsenic or lead right? Nuclear waste, by definition, the thing that people don't like, the fact that it emits radiation means that it's literally transmuting into other like stable normal elements, including like silver. All right. So it's like, you know, everything people believe about it is pretty much the opposite. And then on top of that, it's extremely valuable. You can like use these radioisotopes for medical imaging purposes or for like bridge inspections or for sterilization of equipment. Hell, we use in our fire detectors right now. That's like a little bit of nuclear waste that they put up in there. So it's like there's so many practical applications. And once again, the hazard profile is totally exaggerated. But you know what? Like there are companies that make a billion dollars every year cleaning, quote unquote, cleaning up nuclear waste at like the Hanford site in Was- in Washington in the US, Washington State. A billion dollars a year they make off of it, off the taxpayer dollars, but cleaning up radiation to what is already beneath background levels. But they've been able to write into law uh, that this is necessary and people make a ton of money off it.
1: It's amazing. Also, the propaganda that goes into it. Like, seriously, in Germany growing up, there is this TV show. It's, it's for any German listeners, they'll chuckle, Die Sendung mit der Maus. It's like the TV show that almost every German kid watches. So parents with their children watch that show all the time. And I remember that episode about nuclear waste and like the vivid images of this like very dangerous substance that has to be buried very deep. And it just, you know, almost like in The Simpsons, like they also give it that imagery of it being something very dangerous, right?
0: Listen, even the startups, there's a startup called Deep Isolation and their whole business is like, how do we scare the shit out of people about nuclear waste? So we have to bury it very deep. And then we, oh, what do we have? We have a, a burying very deep technology that they're selling. So they're going around the world writing regulations to exaggerate the risk of nuclear and write into law that it has to be buried very deep and then they show up with the technology to do so. Okay, I'm criticizing the nuclear industry. This happens in every industry, just like the average person is like pretty ignorant to it. And like, that's okay. Like you don't have to know everything, but
1: like here I am telling you, like nuclear waste, we, we need more of it, not less. Yeah, I mean, just before I forget to ask, even though that's a tangent, but you said you also worked on drones before. Do you see yeah. any parallels there in the regulatory landscape? You know,
0: I was a little too like immature as an entrepreneur in that my first startup to like really philosophize around these parallels. In hindsight, I like, I definitely see a lot of lessons learned, uh, but I've never gone back to really like document, um, you know, exactly how it correlates. You know, it's just like, I, I, I was in a heavily regulated industry before. I kind of saw how the sausage was made a little bit. I actually think the FAA made some really good decisions. We're still pretty slow, and we could have a you know a Jetson like world right now if certain things changed. But at least they carved off like a, a weight limit for which they didn't have um, for which they didn't have uh, jurisdiction over, like under two kilograms. And who's ever heard of a regulatory body doing that? Like but that that was cool, and I hope we could do the same in nuclear too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had an episode 24 on this podcast where I talked to a drone company from Colombia, right? Mm -hmm. So we also have one in Prosper called Airy Loop. So there seem to be some promising signs. There's been some breakthroughs um, with drone flights in Rwanda that blind started. But yeah, going back to nuclear. So the last one uh, is the one that I find most kind of iffy to refute because there's so many ways to calculate it. That's the cost argument. Right, yeah. so the challenge I always have is people say, "Oh, it's very cost," yeah. and that's probably true, right? I, yeah, I done... agree.
0: I agree with that. That is a problem. Yeah, and that's yeah, a problem to solve. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's my like
0: great last energy. Like to solve yeah. that problem. Like, I'm yeah, you know, not yeah, that the nuclear yeah. doesn't have problems. I'm saying let's solve the right ones. And cost and time to build are the two problems, and they need to
1: be solved. Exactly. So you don't have to. You can refute the argument by uh, talking about how you can solve it with less yeah. energy well no,
0: yeah i'm not gonna i'm specifically not gonna refute the argument i i will just change the strategy right like yeah
1: yeah. But yeah yeah but but still like you just on the cost side um you you gave a talk that was very interesting well you showed that through all these new regulations that was the reason that the cost so drastically increased right so it's just not inevitable that the costs increase to where they are today or what yeah. they've gone up to, right?
0: Exactly. Like best reactors ever, point beach one and two, you know, built in under three years, you know, combined that had over eleven 1, hundred megawatts over gigawatt, cost under a thousand dollars a kilowatt, like in like, you know, because it was like seven hundred and thirty three million dollars. And that's like you know, inflation adjusted to like, I think like twenty, twenty dollars or something. So it's like cheapest fastest best 500 megawatts like oh, man and then yeah through regulatory capture over these years you know n- like nobody can build those now now power co- you know nuclear power costs 10 times as much takes you know 5 times as long um that's like our like our own self doing
1: but mm-hmm. right. but but now so we're now at the situation we're in now it's still a lot of Regulatory capture, a lot of bottlenecks. So how do you plan on um, sort of disrupting that market with less energy? Carefully.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Carefully. Yeah, like because while I'm like very happy to espouse the, the thesis here that there is no hazard to begin with, that doesn't fly with regulators. So with regulators, we still have to go through all of the requirements and we have to show that even if it's not hazardous, that there isn't above a certain threshold. Of radionuclide exposure under a certain set of circumstances with a certain amount of frequency. So that's the equation you have to fill out. And so we still have to do that, even though I think, you know, it's ridiculous, like, but here's what helps us because we are not trying to like sell ourselves as like, you know, a safety solution to help the catastrophe. And all we're really just trying to do is navigate the regulations, like as they are as efficiently as possible. We make different design trade off decisions like, you know, we surround our reactor with 500 metric tons of steel. It's a few million dollars uh, not that expensive solves every single problem you could possibly imagine, but is not really like, you know, defensible technology, defensible IP. And so it's like, whereas everyone else wants to create a technology that only they can do right? And then claim nuclear is so dangerous. So my safety innovation, which only my PhDs know how to like implement. If they're going in that direction, they're overcomplicating things and making things extraordinarily expensive and not solving the cost problem. You want to solve the radiation problem for regulators? Just throw more steel at it. Like that's simplest, cheapest, easiest, and that's what we're doing.
1: Just to be clear, so your company lost energy, you're producing nuclear reactors.
0: Yeah. So we, what we do is we sell electricity
1: mm-hmm. and the way that we produce electricity for our
0: industrial clients is we build a shrunken version of a pressurized water reactor that, yeah, has that extra feature of wrapping it in like a million pounds of steel, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that satisfies the regulators that satisfies the customers. It's simple. Um, yeah. Like simplicities are key. And then it's more of a
1: business model innovation than a technology innovation. Okay, what's the business model innovation? So the technology is basically light water reactors wrapped in steel, right? Just to fulfill that regulatory requirement. Yep. So what's the business model innovation?
0: Yeah, the business model in- um, innovation is we are selling, we are building a utility ourselves and selling electricity contracts direct to industrial off takers, whereas everyone else is building a technology in partnership with an EPC, engineering procurement construction company on behalf of utility and selling to the grid. So like two radically different businesses, even though your product at the end of the day produces
1: nuclear uh, electricity. Okay. So that's basically vertical integration, right? So you're
0: a different oh. customer, different customer, mm-hmm. vertical integration of, of, of key functions of the business. Yeah. That's the business model innovation.
1: Why did you decide to go that route and what does it enable you?
0: Well, it's harder uh, in the sense that you have to do everything. You can't just say, I have a widget who wants to buy this widget. And then that's your business. That's a pretty easy business. Like we take on licensing, right? We take on electricity sales. We take on financing. We take on, you know, um, owners, uh, engineering oversight. We take on so much. It's like very difficult, very complex, from like a a function perspective of the organization. And that's why other people don't want to do it. They want to just do one thing and do it really well. And I don't blame them. But it's like us taking on this hard challenge, not just the systems integration of the plant. That's the technology piece of what we do, but systems integration of like the various components of the business. Like this is what creates our defensibility. Mm -hmm. So,
1: and that allows you to radically reduce costs.
0: It's not even so much radically reducing costs. What it does is it, Stabilizes your costs. So it reduces radically reduces risk of cost runaway. And if you don't have cost runaway, even at a relative like high energy price, you can still make money. And then over time, as we build more and more and more of these, our costs will go down. But so for right now, like we've got customers that are willing to pay a premium for a product and we're selling to them first at like a pretty high cost, actually. But we have certainty over our costs, so we take all the financial risk. Our customer takes none of the risk, and they love that. That's what works.
1: Great. So how are you entering the market?
0: We build our plants in Texas, in the U.S., and then we ship them over to Europe, and then we're entering into the European market first. Because that's where many of these customers are that require That like we'll pay a high price for energy just because energy is like ridiculous in Europe right now. It's like an existential threat to like countries, security, business, politics, literally everything. Energy is everything. So we sell to Europe, um, specifically the UK, Romania and Poland.
1: Mm -hmm. How did you decide on these three?
0: Well, we scanned the whole world and we measured up all, like all the, we started off with countries that had all the appropriate nuclear treaties in place with the United States. Since we're a US-based company, there's like a white listed version. They're called generally authorized destinations. So we start off with like those 30 to 40 countries and then whittle them down based on a whole set of different factors, including, you know, power price, geopolitical stability. I mean, like, it's so funny. We have this like rubric. And like we ruled out ukraine because we were like ah they were invaded by crimea a few years ago that's you know not a very stable situation yet some of our competitors were like all in on ukraine just because they were like oh we you know they said we want nuclear and they didn't have our rubric and so a company like holtec invested a lot of time and sales effort and contracts even they were like about to have contracts in ukraine and all of that vanished and like i'm like proud of my team is very process-driven analytical like totally data-driven approach to where we go to market? And that's how we ended up picking the countries that we went to.
1: Mm-hmm. So how do you enter a country? Do you have, is the regulator or the regulatory body or agency literally like your first point of contact and do they need to license you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we've been working with the regulators in those countries for uh, informally for years now and formally, you know, as of last year, O&R in the UK, uh, PAA in Poland and Chenecon in Romania. That's like your first step to like doing
1: anything in this country is like meet with a nuclear regulator. And what's the timeline to to get to market with these regulators? Must be a couple of years, right?
0: We're hoping we can do it in two, two and a half years While and we're building the plant in parallel in that time. That's another thing that differentiates us because we take on like the entire like stack of the business model as well as the technology, um, uh, the systems integration of technology, I should say we are uniquely able to run both those processes in parallel everyone else has to run them in sequence so we're having hoping to have our first plan online mid 2025 uh, it's optimistic uh, you know maybe it takes an extra year but that's what our target is yeah and the regulators that we've met with they seem like they seem like it's doable like i mean you know it's like we're functioning the same thing as what they've already seen before pressure water reactor except 50 times smaller So like a, like, and you could say linearly, that's like a 50 times less hazard profile, but it's even more than that because certain things change exponentially as you go smaller. So this like the case is so easy for us to make that. Yes, we are hoping we can do it in half time because usually it's like four years to regulate a gigawatt scale plan.
1: Yeah. And you have three countries that basically diversifies your risk, right? Sort of if one takes longer, you know, then you still have a chance that the other one doesn't.
0: Yeah. So, like, our plant is going to be ready in Texas, ready to go at the beginning of 2025. And so, whichever country finishes licensing first gets our plant first.
1: Yeah. And, and just they curious. Want, I, yeah. yeah. What is kind of um, roughly the cost in manpower or in money? Um, how, like, how many lawyers do you need for le- regulatory compliance for each licensing or application process in each country? Mm. Just roughly, it doesn't have to be precise. Between
0: millions and tens of millions of dollars.
1: Between millions and tens of millions. Yeah, it's just in just in legal.
0: It's better than billions.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And the price is very big once you achieve it, right? Yeah. Then you have a lot of mode and defensibility. But, you know, honestly, entrepreneurs like you fascinate me because this is just so much more complex and strategic and you have to combine a lot of different skill sets a lot of different moving parts you can build the giants of industry this way right Right? Exactly. So. yeah
0: exactly and it's like listen yeah nuclear is already so hard as it is to take on additional science and technology risk is to me that's just i don't want to say it's crazy because like i like i appreciate these other companies i appreciate what they're doing i personally like the people there i think they're brilliant great to get along with i see them at conferences uh, i like have a tremendous amount of respect for them so i don't want to call it crazy but i think let's just say that the pathway of Taking on additional tech and science risk in already one of the trickiest industries out there, to me, it just seems like totally unnecessary.
1: So for nuclear to become sort of the source of super abundant energy for the planet, do we need like a nuclear revival? Do we need an improved public perception or what needs to happen for enter that?
0: I think it's like people don't know which, which wags which, like the tail or the dog. I think when nuclear is cost effective like given all those other problems with it are just like total bullshit, like when it becomes cost effective, public sentiment will like change because of all like the natural like like market mechanisms and incentive structures that like leads towards you know people like it being you know you know pushed in a certain way like to to feel a certain thing for like a thriving successful industry and even if it's not like quite frankly I don't care i I couldn't care less if everyone hated nuclear, uh but it was doing its job providing clean abundant affordable power for the whole globe like what do i like i don't care if everyone hates me i don't care if everyone hates the company or the industry like if we're doing good for humanity that's all that matters um though i know a lot of other entrepreneurs wouldn't get into a business if
1: they thought they were going to be hated um just doesn't matter that's a very very important point right there like you we met at a talk at, by the foresight and you sat there and that just really impressed me because i think Many entrepreneurs, they're, they're afraid of that and they shouldn't be, right? If you're, if what you're doing is, if you have a true insight, you know, you're going to have the true insight before the rest of the world, you're in the beginning of the early adopter curve, if, you know, you, you know, it's safe and if there is this massive benefit it provides to humanity, you know, go ahead, right? Don't yeah. look to be popular. You have to start um, as a nobody to become a somebody, right?
0: I, yeah like if there's one thing i am certain of is that in hindsight this will be obvious to the whole world and people are gonna like historians will be looking in the books and trying to figure out like yeah exactly. if it's so but obvious they, then like oh
1: boy. like so many major innovations in world history like galileo galilei and many of the paradigm shifts in science that's where they came from right there's a consensus that forms and then Some entrepreneurial spirits are questioning that consensus and they're correct. And eventually the rest of the world becomes convinced by the practically superior results. Right. Yep. So I think that's very important for any entrepreneur that's listening to notice, like, don't go with the social consensus, but you have to be correct and you have to do it right. And you have to be ethical and you have to have the proper safeguards in place.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're going to take a big shot, you better be right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, you're going to be the villain. Okay. <laughs> and the other thing that also quite interesting is, so you you were saying on this podcast, we say very openly what the problem is with the regulations and the regulators. At the same time, when you have the conversations with the regulators, you're doing it in a way that it fits the regulation. I think many entrepreneurs, some which I had in the podcast, they're kind of sometimes afraid to say in public what these problems are, maybe they're afraid that the regulator will listen or something like that. Right? Yeah, no,
0: I understand why people are, are reluctant to say what they actually feel publicly. I can maybe offer an explanation as to why I'm a little different in that sense. One is that, you know, I spent two years like interviewing subject matter experts across nuclear. And even the first year, even though the the truth was like obvious to me, like I doubted myself because like the consensus was something else. But after years of it, like at some point I realized that in an interview, in a podcast interview, I ended up like knowing more about the subject matter than the expert I was interviewing like across, like not as deep as they went on their PhD thesis, but like the minute that their expertise touches another like area where they're not a core expert, like that's where like I correct their misconceptions. And so after that happened, I just like had the confidence that, you know, uh, no matter what I say, I can back it up, like I can back it up logically, analytically, historically through like, we can like sit down and do the physics together. So that gives me a, a lot of ability to just like speak the truth, even if it's going to upset people. And then the other thing I'm always very careful about is that like, I do not blame the regulators as people. I blame the institution. I the regulators as people are great people, doing their job, working hard, very smart, very talented, very good intentioned. Like I, I really enjoy my interactions with them. So I'm, I'm not criticizing the people. I'm criticizing the institution, and I give them enough credit, like that they're like smart enough to realize that and internalize that, and that I'm treating them with respect in that way. And I think that then they
1: treat me with the same respect back. Mm-hmm. Also, very good lesson for entrepreneurs. What else, um, what were your lessons going on this specific entrepreneurial journey? Was there something you wish you would have known before you started Last Energy?
0: I mean, I wish I, had, it would have saved me a lot of time if I'd like known everything going in, but like you learn along the way, I guess, right? You learn mm-hmm. Along the way. I mean, that's what the podcast is for me. It's like a learning tool. And so I don't think like, yeah, if I could, have collected all of those, all of that knowledge on day one. Uh, though maybe I wouldn't, because then it wouldn't have given me the credibility and the chance to meet so many amazing people. So, what do I wish I would have known? um
1: Yeah, nothing. I like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's all working out. <laughs> or <laughs> anything you can give. Uh, asp- so, there's many aspiring entrepreneurs or people like graduating from university or from high school that um, want to make an impact. That want to help combat climate change, build energy superabundance. Um, but it's very hard to get started, right? So many aren't like engineers who have a background as engineers. There's also sometimes, I think, successful founders in another industry that are looking, you know, to do something that's like not software or something like that, right? So they're looking to build something more ambitious. What can you say to people? What is, is it possible to start a business in a very engineering-heavy field? Should you go to back to study engineering or how do you have to do
0: And I don't think they need to go back to study engineering. I do think engineers have an advantage, not from the engineering know-how, but from the analytical mindset. But let's say that you weren't an engineer, you studied economics or anything that just gave you an analytical mindset and an approach to problem solving. I think that's more than sufficient. I mean, the math that I do and that my team does on like a daily basis is mostly like algebra, like basic algebra. So like, I think people should not be afraid to do math, even though... They have they don't have an engineering background and do math to support like whatever decision making processes they're going through. Um, that being said, I think like the biggest piece of advice that I could offer any up and coming entrepreneur is like be need pull not tech push. The minute that you've got a great idea for a technology, like stop it. Nobody needs your your technology idea. Just stop it. Like like speak to customers like figure out what product market fit is before you invent something and then build what the customers need. Always be need pull, not
1: tech push. Great. And specifically when it comes to nuclear energy, I think you've also given a great guide of resources with the Titans of Nuclear podcast. I think it has like 500 episodes or something like that.
0: right? Yeah. And we have another podcast too, The Energy Impact. Yeah, I mean, I got to give a shout out to like our production team here. Olivia and now Sarah, like do a tremendous job putting this together. I couldn't do it without them. Um, so I just show up to cool conversations, but they do a lot of hard work uh, to make it uh, to make it work.
1: Yeah, yeah. So for any aspiring entrepreneur, that's, I think, a good guide and a good resource to start to discover some of these problems that follow some of the, uh, get some of the research and the insights that Brad and his colleagues have already done to uncover some of the problems yourself or use it as a guide to, you know, who are the customers to speak to, right? That's not always clear from the outside, but um, I think you'd be pretty up to date if you listen to or follow that podcast. Great. Um, anything else you felt like you haven't talked about enough when it comes to your company or when it comes to the, the change that you want to create or see in the world?
0: Listen, I just think like energy abundance is, is the most important. Like more like like climate change thing, great. Like yes, we should fix climate change, but with energy abundance, like we're not just fixing problems. We're like launching humanity into a world of like unlimited potential, and that's like that's what we should be thinking about. Uh, like if we get too obsessed with like the problem, yes, like when coming up with like specific technical solutions, be obsessed with the problem. But when thinking about like where do we want to
1: take society? Let's use our imagination
0: because the, the future is vast.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I like the concept of superabundance myself and of uh, also Red blood Bull, Bjorn Lomborg, which I think is a useful corrective to, or good or necessary um, when it comes to thinking about climate change, right? So a lot of the narrative that's out there is like, you know, the, the world is ending and, and we have to do everything we can to save humanity from climate change. But not nuclear, or not like any of these geoengineering or the things, right? It, it's kind of a uh, paradoxical, right? These,
0: yeah, it's such a big problem, but we don't want to use the solution that's never hurt like anyone. Yeah, exactly. 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 Now, not, you know it's a religion. And that's the other problem with climate. Like, yeah, we've got a climate problem, but it's been the movement has been hijacked by like a new age religion. So, like, I think, like, some of those people are more enemies now than or they, they like they should be perceived as a threat to their own stated goals more
1: than the oil and gas industry is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Brett, anything else, any shout out did you want to give, anything, any help that you need for your company right now, any support you want to enlist? What do you need and how can people find you if they want to help you?
0: Yeah, European industrials, like those are our customers. So you know anyone like, you know, that works at or runs a company that does anything from, you know, glass, cement, pulp and paper, steel, aluminum, automotive manufacturing, battery manufacturing, data centers, like if like if you're tied into those industries in Europe specifically, reach out to us. Like that's how you can help the most because that's who we're selling power plants to
1: right? Through a website or how yeah, do
0: you look at it? You can just write it on, on the
1: website. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Brad, it was really epic to have you on your show. I think this is such a core stranded technology episode that we had today. So thank you for um, sort of teasing or getting the German-ness out of me when it comes to my nuclear mm-hmm. energy. I mean, it was already given so many things that you said, but it's good to have that ammunition for debates and to show to other people and um, to so show them what's possible and how we can go reach energy super abundance. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Brett. Thanks, Nicholas.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.